Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the podcast, I get the amazing opportunity to chat with my friend, Dr. Nicholas Guyette, author of Bind Us Apart, How Enlightened Americans Invented Racial Segregation, published in 2016. During my conversation with Nick, we discussed not only Bind Us Apart, We chop it up about the 2020 U.S. presidential election, the many kerfuffles surrounding the the 1619 Project, and what it means for Nick to write about the lives and experiences of Black and Indigenous people in the early American Republic period. I hope and pray y'all enjoyed the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Nick Guyette. How are you doing today? Hey, Adam. I'm so glad we finally got the chance to do this. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's uh, for, for those who don't know, it is Election Day 2020 here in the United States. And I'm talking to my brother from across the pond, Nick Guyette from uh, Cambridge University. And so uh, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. It's weird, isn't it? Like just to think about the fact that whoever listens to this, they're going to know, I think, what the outcome of this election is. And me and you right now, we are completely in the dark. We're left alone with our hopes. Exactly. And I think that there's, yeah. I like how you said that. That that actually puts a interesting uh, a spin on 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 the on the moment that we're at, um, and it really uh, sets the scene up fairly well. Especially because you know we're talking about American elections, but we're also talking about the founding of the nation, right? You have this thing in the air called originalism, you know, in terms of uh, the Supreme Court and uh, some of these uh, historians, right? You know, we'll we'll get to that. There's a whole lot to talk about that. Um, but sure. first to begin, let's talk about this amazing book called Bind Us Apart. What is the origin story of this book? I love the way you frame this question, Adam, like the origin story. It's kind of like a superhero reference, you know, like Bind Us Apart began as a normal child. And then maybe its parents were taken away and it became this kind of superhero or supervillain. Like you have a very nice <laughs> way of asking the question when you say origin story. Uh, I, so I was writing this um, previous book, uh, my first book. Uh, which is called Providence and the Invention of the United States, which is basically a book about how Americans, principally but not entirely white Americans, came to think that God liked the United States more than every other nation. So it's kind of this big kooky book that kind of takes on that question and tries to kind of give a history and a spin to you know what became known as Manifest Destiny. Um, one of the things I do in the second half of the book is I try and look at how white Americans approach the persistence and the kind of survival of African-American and Native American people in the early Republic. And what kind of jumped out at me was uh, this bizarre process by which mostly white Americans argued that black people and uh, Native Americans could go someplace else, that actually they might go off to the West or they might go to Africa or the Caribbean and found these glorious societies there where they could be, you know, Native Indigenous Republicans or they could be black Republicans. And they'd be just like white Americans, but not in the U.S. So this struck me as a kind of bizarre uh, process and a kind of strange dynamic. And, uh, yeah, I got to thinking about it a bit more and wanted to write about it. So back in 2011, I had an article in the Journal of American History uh, where I went into this at some length and basically tried to set up white projects for displacing and for removing black people and Native Americans in the same frame. And I should say, Adam, that we we often don't think about Native American removal and African colonization. So these two schemes for racial removal, we don't think about them in the same frame. And there are a whole bunch of different reasons for that. Like one of them is that actually removal happened for Native Americans. And for the most part, it didn't happen for African-Americans. But historians have been kind of reluctant to put them together. So anyway, in the article, uh, I put them together and argued that we should think about these as parallel schemes and, and what made them really interesting to me is that they were, generally speaking, schemes that were not endorsed by the most diehard uh, white racists or slaveholders. 
uh, sort of pro-slavery Southerners, they were actually endorsed by the kind of people that we would now describe as liberal. So we're talking here about white moderates, uh, people that believe slavery is a bad idea, support gradual emancipation and so on. Those guys were really driving both of these ideas, Indian removal and also African colonization. So that's kind of where it began with my previous book. And then uh, yeah, I did this article in 2011 for the JAH. And then I thought it uh, deserved a whole book. So uh, the book actually came out a while ago in 2016. So you probably remember it better than I do, but I'm going to do my best today to pretend like I'm on top <laughs> of my brief, okay? Hey, and it's an interesting way that we can connect uh, the 2016 election to the 2020 election too, right? Because we're we're present oh, good, to good the point, stories, right? We're present to We're always looking yeah, at right. the, we're always <laughs> looking at the <laughs> right. We're always looking at the, the 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 present to help us inform us about the past that we write about. So you know, objectivity, right? For the yeah. win. <laughs> there you go. There yeah. You go. Yeah, good old methods class. And so, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I love about New Books in African American Studies is that I get to talk to my favorite historians about not only books, but also kind of like the meta, right? How do we, how, how do these historians and these scholars and these writers and these thinkers write their books? So, f- for me, Nick, mm-hmm. can you talk to us about, you know, overall, specifically to Bonus Apart and in, in general, um, your writing process, right? Tell us about your writing process and what that looks like. Paint us the picture. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, you'll appreciate this. I think everyone in the history biz will appreciate that the biggest challenge uh, being a historian in terms of writing is figuring out how to make peace with the fact that you don't know enough, right? Like you never know enough. Like mm-hmm. whenever you pick up your pen or you start typing, you always know that there's more that you could read. So I think that like a lot of us, I struggle with that to getting to the point where I'm actually willing to, um, you know, do the trade-off, right? It's like, well, this book or this article has to appear before the end of time. I could carry on reading until the end of time. <laughs> Therefore, I need to kind of call an arbitrary end to the reading and start with the writing. So I struggle with that a bit. But actually, the like writing, like just sort of putting the words on the page, that's not so much of a problem for me. The bigger problem is writing too much. So the first draft of Minus Apart was about 200,000 words, and the final draft is about 120,000. So my brilliant editor is like, hey, we love your first draft. Here's where you need to lose those 80,000 words. Goodness so, gracious, you know, a lot. In some ways, yeah, there's like a whole book cut out of the book, but anyone who's read Minus Apart will not miss the 80,000 words that I cut out. Like they might have wanted me to cut some more out. So actually, that's sort of a big part of my writing process. I tend to write a bit long. So figuring out how to get rid of the, um, you know, the filler, the stuff you don't really need, that's the bigger challenge to me than writing the words in the first place. Wow. See, see, that's some good stuff. So so I'm actually going to spin this a little bit differently. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, painting the picture of us. Are you the type of person, right? Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'll, I'll talk about mine too, right? So, so that you know that this is, you know, the, the, this is a, a back and forth, right? Um, what does the, like, what does the scene look like in terms of, are you a nighttime writer? Are you a early morning, you know, got your, cu- got your cup of coffee, you know, all that kind mm. of stuff. What does, and also what does the, like, you know, the setup look like too, right? Yeah, well, um, I mean, so I, I have now written another book, which we might talk a bit about later on, but it's still in draft. And I tell you, Adam, I made exactly the same mistake. So I wrote 200,000 words nearly. The book is supposed to be 120,000 <laughs> words. Now, I'm not even kidding. So I've like learned nothing, wow. right? So wow. I have this book manuscript now, which I need to take another 80,000 words out before the publisher will accept it. And they are totally right. Again, nobody wants like the director's cut of this new book. Anyway, I should say that like that book, this one I've been writing uh, this year, I didn't have really a, a word on the page until the start of January. So from January through the beginning of May, I wrote a chapter a week. And to begin with, I wrote a chapter a week in my office. So if I needed, like I'd start on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. If it wasn't done on Thursday, Friday, I would stay until it was done. Tried not to work the weekend. And then when we went into lockdown, uh, which over here in the UK was the middle of March, I moved to the shed at the end of my garden, which I can tell you, Adam, is as glamorous as it sounds. It has power, <laughs> but it doesn't really have anything else. It doesn't have like heating or, I mean, it's kind yeah. of a crap hole. So I was in there then for another two months. 
And you know, like you know, like in March, like it kind of still gets dark fairly early. So mm-hmm. Thursday or Friday night, I'd be out there till like nine or ten or eleven o'clock at night. And my family are in the house. They're like, "What is the crazy man doing now?" But it was important to me to get the chapter done per week because I really felt like I needed the manuscript. So I don't recommend anyone writes this way. This is this is a bit of therapy for me talking to you about it. But um, yeah, I just yeah, I, I guess I when I have to and I really need to, I can crank it out. But but I don't. Know, how, how does it work for you? Do you find it easy? Whew, that's a great question. Yeah, for me, I'm I'm at the point now where um, so so uh, I guess a month or two ago, I interviewed Dr. Jessica Marie Johnson on the podcast for her new book, oh, Wicked yeah. Flesh, and oh yeah, um, yeah, and and I, I tweeted about this uh, earlier this week or late last week, where. I, I was literally just thinking about writing and you know how sometimes you, you, when you look at the mountain and then your knees start to, to, you know, quiver because like the sheer amount of like, damn it, I got to get all the way up there. Um, yeah, for yeah. me, what's actually helped so, so freaking much. And, and Dr. Johnson, if you, if you're listening, thank you because she mentioned <laughs> writing and she thinks in 250 word chunks and right. I'm like, well, shit. Okay, 250 words. That is effectively what um, a, a long, a long paragraph. Effectively, I guess I'm trying to think. Yeah. You know, so so I'm thinking, can I do a paragraph six days a week and I take off for the Sabbath on Sunday? You damn right I can. Right. And, and here's mm. the thing: I'm at this point now where there's always something to write, whether it's um, writing for a fellowship application or revising. Um, and so for me, it just helps me to think I'm like, because the thing is, my thing is I can see the vision. I can write down the writing, um, like what is due over the next six months, but the minutia of getting to like, effectively, I don't want to have to stay up a whole day to be able to write something. I need to be able to hit it where I'm doing 250 to 500 words contributing to it. And it doesn't have to be on one thing. It could be on multiple things in one day. So it's effectively trying to get there. Um, And so it's still a work in progress, but Lord knows I've seen myself change from the beginning of the year to now. And, and I, and and to go even further, you're talking about, um, you know, the shutdown when, um, I remember, uh, it's probably a conversation with myself just, or with people and they were talking about, you know, working from home. I was like, how the hell do y'all work from huh? home? How do y'all do it? I don't know how <laughs> I am a coffee shop. I am a, you know, I'm a coffee shop drink, uh, coffee shop writer. I am a library writer. I am everywhere, but my damn house writer. Right. But then quarantine happened like i had no you know my butt started to get tired because i was sitting on these bad chairs in the house and you know and so i didn't have a desk i didn't have an office chair i didn't have you know bookshelves in my room and so i had to literally on the fly because my room is small i had to effectively 70 percent of my room is work like desk right. three um three uh, uh bookshelves and, you know, it's not necessarily optimum for a full life, but I know for this year it's been conducive. Um, right. And so it's just been nice seeing myself change and, mm-hmm. and, and it's, and it's a process of course, but, um, looking, you know, 10 months earlier or 11 months earlier now, it's been a process. And so, uh, Thank you for asking. You know, talking well, no, about I mean, you know what, what, I'll tell you what, com- what comes out of what you just said, Adam, to me is, well, I, mean, I should have said this earlier. So when you're a writer, whether you're a historian or any kind of writer, and someone invites you to talk about your process, you immediately move into this kind of bubble of preciousness, right? Where you're like, oh, mm-hmm. let me tell you about my process. Actually, it's like everything else. This stuff is all deeply gendered. Uh, I'm sure that, like, you know, your position in the profession or whatever else influences this a lot. Also, mm-hmm. the stage of life you're at, right? So, I mean, I have two daughters. One is uh, about to be 12, the other is about to be 14. I probably couldn't have gone away with, like, sitting at the shed at the end of my garden, like, till 11 o'clock at night, were it not for the fact that my wife is taking on the parenting responsibility, which is basically just means ignoring my kids. But, you know, someone has to ignore them actively, right? That's how parenting <laughs> works. So she's doing that. I wouldn't have been able to do that maybe five or ten years ago. And again, like you talk about the position in your career, I was really fortunate to have leave this past year. There are a whole bunch of people that don't have leave 
like trying to start in the business mm-hmm. or effectively mm-hmm. trying to make this magic happen without all of the kind of privileges and the perks that I had. So speaking personally as someone who's got a nice job and is a bit further on in the profession, my heart goes out to, and I'm absolutely like in awe and admiration of those people who necessarily have to kind of cram this stuff in. And whether it's 250 words a day or, I mean, you spoke about Jessica Marie Johnson. I mean, she's like a master stylist. Like she is a total craftsperson, just in terms of like the way that she writes. I mean, her stuff is awesome. But I mean, for, for those of us who are just trying to get like anything on the page, I just think, yeah, some of us are really fortunate to enjoy the fact that we get like a leave year. And for others, you have to try and make your writing fit the circumstances you're in. And I think that's so tough. So I have such a lot of admiration for people that can make it work, whatever the circumstances, right? Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, we're, we're at the point now where, you know, we're entering this, I don't know if you want to call it second, third, fourth, or how, whatever stage we're in of this uh, quarantine and uh, not, definitely not quarantine. Very few people even do that anymore. But um, this, you know, shelter in place kind of situation in, in, in our countries. Yeah, yeah. And, and now it's like, you know, uh, I think we're reaching the point of stamina. Um, like, do we have the stamina? Because, and I see this um, um, being near living near my college campus and going to pick up food from places around and literally seeing like the fatigue on in, in the, not necessarily that you can see the fatigue on people's faces, but through the, through their actions, you're seeing fatigue of just like, be, do and, and this is something where I've had to really, you know, not wag my fingers at people and actually think about myself. Ten years ago, when I yep. had when I started college, could I have just been that responsible to not do anything? I'm like I'm just being completely, completely like this is as objective as I I can ever get in life. Could I have yep. reasonably expected myself, or? I, I was a resident assistant, so I had a, I, I cared for freshmen and, and sophomore young young students, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Could I have expected myself or could I have expected them to adhere to all of these rules? Not to say mm-hmm. the rules are not important and they shouldn't be there, but also the understanding of the human nature of it, right? Being cooped up in, yep. you know, for X amount of time. So um, shouldn't be out here just going wild and just doing all that. Definitely not absolving that. Make sure that's on you know, that's on the, the record. But I also have to be at least somewhat understanding about that too. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, you're 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 teaching right now, and I'm I'm sure you kind of probably see that in, in some of the students um that, that are probably um interspersed through the community, right? Oh yeah. I mean I think that um you're right. I mean we, we kind of uh, so first like you feel incredible compassion and solidarity with everyone, right? And I mean there are sort of layers of good fortune, I guess. I mean, if you have a job in the business, and maybe even if you're in grad school and you're kind of securing your position or whatever else, at least getting your PhD done, you have another few years of funding. I mean, you know, that's a better place to be in than be out in the workforce right now where, you know, it's tough and uh, there's not a lot of hope on the horizon. But I think as a teacher or as someone uh, who has an academic job, the really nice thing always about what we do is that we have the research and we have the teaching and they are obviously deeply connected. But they're also really different activities. You know, one of them is a bit more solitary. You may have a writing group, but it's still kind of more solitary. The other is so kind of community focused. And I mean, I felt coming back off leave this past year, I've really wanted to invest time in my students. I mean, I hope I would always do it right. But I've really gone the extra mile and I'm going the extra mile right now because you can just see these human beings that you're teaching that they they need this. Like they need to feel engage with, they need to feel uh, valued, they need to feel as if there's a purpose to what you're doing. And you're going to make teaching on Zoom work, you know, you're going to make this remote stuff work, you're just going to have to pour your heart and soul into it. And for me, that's, uh, it's hugely rewarding. I mean, it's a sort of like uh, privilege, as well as being a kind of responsibility of the job. But it's something else Like if you ever get a job in the business, they're so hard to get, but you just so lucky to have one. And um, yeah, right now, it's a fascinating place to be in terms of thinking about what you can do to help your students. And one of the things that I'm sure your students appreciate is how much you talk about the U.S. founders. I'm sure that they appreciate that. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you know you you know you have contributed really to you know our understanding about the the founding era and and also this thing called racial segregation. Um, and so you know the U.S. founders have had thousands, maybe even millions, of books probably written about them over the course of history. 
going back to to to, to bind us apart, um, and, and even I also noticed that you had an uh, you had a chapter I think in the African American colonization book uh, through University oh, yeah. Press of Florida. Um, so you can you know weave mm-hmm. you know any any thoughts from from that too. But why do you going back? Why do you think? No one really made a substantive connection be- between the founding era and the Enlightenment and the origins of U.S. segregation. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there are a bunch of reasons, right? Um, I mean, I think that one of them is that we tend to see segregation as a post-bellum, you know, like story following the collapse of Reconstruction. So to put it really crudely, uh, white people in the South. And again, we tend to think, uh, or at least this is the way that a lot of popular historians think of black people as being a southern rather than a northern phenomenon. So black people are located in the South. Slavery means that you don't need a system of segregation because within slavery, there are all kinds of intimacies and all kinds of proximities, which are kind of licensed or made necessary by the institution of slavery. But at the moment slavery is abolished, suddenly the law and social practice needs to come in and enforce this separation, you know, to serve white supremacy and to protect kind of, you know, whatever white sensitivities and anxieties. That's the way the story usually gets told. And our, so, so what you get then is you get slavery and segregation, like segregation is the sequel to slavery, right? So Jim Crow mm-hmm. is the thing that happens in US history when slavery is done. Now, I mean, that's always struck me as being, I mean, there's, a, there's more than a grain of truth to that if you want to try and think about this demographically or in terms of the total size of the African-American population. But it's always struck me as being flawed in two ways. I mean, one of them is obviously there's a significant population of African-Americans in the northern states, some of them in the antebellum period who are coming up from the upper south where they've been manumitted or emancipated, but many, most who are born free. So we have this very large free black population. So we ought to be thinking about the citizenship claims the kind of calls on all men are created equal that those guys are making from the get-go. But but the, the other reason that I think ignoring segregation in the founding period is a really bad idea is that there's this kind of um, popular misconception that the reason slavery isn't abolished during the American Revolution or just after the American Revolution is that slaveholders are desperate to make money from enslaved people. Now, that's not a lie. That's true. But it's not the whole truth. And if you go back and you look at, say, the state of slavery in places like North Carolina, and particularly Virginia and Maryland, maybe Virginia is the best example, you have a whole lot of slaveholders and slavers in the 1780s and the 1790s who recognize that economically speaking, the crops that they have produced within slave labor are not as successful as they used to be, and who feel the contradiction between holding human beings in bondage and these ideals that the United States has just signed up to. And actually, I mean, I call them in Bind Us Apart, anti-slavery slaveholders, you know, which is a paradox, right? But it's Mm -hmm. also intended to be a bit ironic. I mean, these are guys claiming to be against slavery who still hold enslaved people. But the reason they tell you, Adam, that they will not or cannot free their slaves is they say enslaved people can't live next to white people after slavery. So in other words, it will be impossible for them. I mean, Thomas Jefferson says it in Notes from the State of Virginia. There'll be these kind of 10,000 recollections of harm suffered or whatever. Uh, There may be the real differences of nature as well, although Jefferson kind of finesses the race thing. But it's basically like, we can't live alongside these people after we free them. So we should free them, but we can't live alongside them. So that to me was the kind of like, as much as thinking about the free black presence in the North, trying to figure out how important that motive was for perpetuating slavery, a kind of social squeamishness about a mixed race society after emancipation. That to me is why we need to plug segregation back into the founding moment, because this is where these schemes for removing black people or colonizing black people take root. And, um, you know, we'll get into this, but it seems to me significant that Thomas Jefferson maybe close to the most important or next to most important of the founding fathers is a colonizationist from an early part of his career until the day he dies. Now, that should matter in American history more than it does. Why do we choose to look past it? Well, we could get into that. And we will. And we will. And, and, and you know, you brought up uh, when, when you brought up notes on the state of Virginia, I, I literally was like, notes and, and like, so, so I already know, like, we may be a thousand plus, you know, multi thousand miles away, but we are like, well connected, like, it's like we're married. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like you're finishing my sentence. It's, it's great. <laughs> I really appreciate it. You know, <laughs> because notes on the state of Virginia, I remember um, 
damn it, I don't remember the first time I read it, but I remember one of my first recollections from reading it was first of all how actually magnificent it actually was, right? Take you know, and 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 I don't say that lightly, but just thinking about how black folks have talked back to Jefferson since seven, well, since seventeen seventy six, right? And just thinking about. Yep. Jefferson in Black American memory. And so I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, Nick Gordon-Reed's work. I think uh, Mia Bay mm-hmm. has has written some some about it as well. But just thinking about in the Black intellectual tradition, you know, talking back to to, to Jefferson in a way, you know, going back to someone like Banneker or, or Walker um, as well. Sure. And so, um, you know, and, and also just thinking, like you said, talking about colonization and also how the notes, if I'm not mistaken, was the only actual like book that he actually got published um yeah. i don't know if i got I th- yeah and so just thinking about that tome as being as being such a manifestation and also a central part of even your work as well thinking about segregation especially with uh scientific um you know uh, scientific racism and such like that too um and 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 it's also why I was so happy reading your book, just, just reading because I read it, um, for, for my comprehensive exams, uh, which I took Mm -hmm. in African American history a couple months, about a month ago. And, um, reading it was just like, oh yeah, I got it. You know, reading this, I got to make this interview happen because we're at the the particular Mm -hmm. point in our history where I think it's important to read a book like yours. Uh, in, in general, I think people should have read it in 2016 and they probably would have made hopefully better decisions. But hopefully people have matured. <laughs> hopefully people have matured over the course of these last four years. Um, and so your your I mean, book. It's kind, also, it's kind, it's kind yeah. of you to say that, but I mean, I, I just want I just want to say, Adam. I mean, like it, this is sort of bracing conversation, right? I mean, for a lot of people in America, because one wants to imagine that the founding is the beginning of a process of extending rights, extending citizenship, extending all men are created equal to everyone. So in other words, that you can kind of trace a straight line and better still a straight line on the graph that's kind of going up and up and up, but gradually includes more of the American population. So if you want, there's a kind of, let's call it like a continuity to America's moral epiphany. And if you can locate the moral Mm. epiphany in either the Declaration of Independence or in the Constitution, and then you can see it kind of unfolding and getting kind of ever more glorious as it gets larger and larger and larger. But that's a really comforting thought. And also it kind of unites American history in a way that could bring African Americans, white Americans, possibly other hyphenated Americans within the same community. The problem with colonization is it supposes that white people understand that slavery is wrong. So they get the kind of moral argument against slavery, but they still want to exclude black people. And I think it's that kind of crime (laughs) against our Mm -hmm. desire for a more morally unified American history that a lot of us who've written on this stuff are kind of we're we're fighting against the perception that we are you know we're like putting graffiti we're putting tags on the founders right like we should be respecting them and instead we're suggesting that these are guys that could imagine slavery was wrong but could also think that black exclusion was right and I think that that Mm -hmm. is a, a boulder or like a stone that you have to keep pushing up the hill in American history because people want the story to be a happier one than it was exactly and and you're and to even refer back to what you had mentioned before about um was it i think you you said the specific term was anti-slavery slaveholder i think that was yeah yeah yeah. that you know to me goes to the point of just like how people just want the founders to be so palatable right even just like um hamilton right um just thinking about him as a almost as like a verb now in a way because of how Hamilton, the musical or whatever has taken on its own, you know, life. And, you know, everyone's looking for that anti-slavery founder or that, uh, that abolitionist founder. Um, it was like, Oh yeah. Did you y'all... see that piece? Um, did you see that piece, Adam, in the J.R. this summer by Jason Young, the uh, fear of a black planet towards the diasporic history of the early Republic. Do you remember that? It came out in like yeah. June or July. I think. Yeah. Yep. I mean, so what was great about that was the way, you know, Jason was like, okay, so Hamilton is awesome in a way because it effectively inverts our assumptions about race and the founding, but mm-hmm. also it inserts black people in the founding of the U S in a way, again, that actually gives a kind of sucker to this narrative that, 
there was always space for black people at the founding, right? It was like eventually mm -hmm. they found that space. And that Hamilton is the kind of ultimate sign that that space was always there for them to find. And, you know, I mean, Jason Young in the article is like, there are other black trajectories. There are other chronologies. You could think about the African di the diaspora. You could think about black nationalism. You could think about these other ways of navigating not just black identity, but black belonging, which mm -hmm. don't place the be all and end all of a black future with the birth of the United States. So, I mean, I think again, Hamilton, between things like Hamilton and 1619, what you've seen, I think, in the course of the past few years is an incredible focus on the founding moment from all of these different political perspectives, which I think make for an incredibly rewarding like national conversation, but also mm -hmm. make for a difficult time for people. I, know, I mean, there's a reason that Hamilton is a whole lot more popular uh, with white liberals than 1619. Let's just put Oof. it that way. Alrighty. All right. You're, 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 I, I see some flames. I see, I see some flames over there. Uh oh, you burned <laughs> it down some houses over there. there. I don't want to, I don't want to upset anyone on election day. You know that. I don't want to upset anyone. <laughs> Hey, look, look, Nick, you're you're definitely um you're you're hinting at something that that's really um important because and I love how you how you how you connected um sixteen nineteen to the sixteen nineteen project from uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, a phenomenal journalist at the at the Times, to mm -hmm. um to to Hamilton, right? Because at the end of the day, um we're in a moment of almost like you know I'm I was born in nineteen ninety two and I remember hearing these stories about like Eric Foner on, you know, CNN and with Liz Cheney and all these, you know, the, the culture wars of the late eighties and early nineties. And so just thinking yep, yep. about what 30, effectively almost around 30 years later, this might be, you know, maybe not on the same level, but it's in the, it's in the atmosphere. It's like it's near um, this kind of moment. And, well, and I, I mean, think, what's interesting about, yeah. Yeah, well, I was going to say um, Sorry, the, the 1776 uh, commission from from Trump, you know, makes me also think, right, you know, Gordon Wood and, you know, who 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 the hell knew what a world socialist website was before 1619 Project? Lord knows <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> you know, and so it's just, you know, a, a freaking situation. I'm like, like the 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 interesting bedfellows, like in this moment, I think is just 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 so like WTF, like what is going on right now? But hey, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I mean, in terms of talking about culture war, you talk about Lynn Cheney and, and Eric Foner. I mean, I think what's interesting about now and this kind of discussion of the founding is actually we've got many different camps, right? So we have a kind of camp that is principally led by black scholars, and which includes, I would say, uh, more progressive scholars, white or black or uh, indigenous or whatever else, that have really embraced things like 1619. And I think are more ready to have this conversation about the founding. So in other words, they're more willing to make peace with the idea that either pro-slavery or exclusion have a role in the founding that disrupts the moral unity of American history. So there's that group of people, right? But then actually, as it were, on the other side, we don't just have like uh, fire-breathing conservatives like Donald Trump and his you know, White House Conference on American History types. I mean, these are people I would associate with the right and whatever else. We also have a number of scholars uh, and uh, writers who are more, I would say, in the political center. So these are people that I would describe as being more of the kind of liberal persuasion. And obviously, I don't want to personalize it too much, but one of them is Sean Wilentz. One of them is Gordon mm -hmm. Wood. These other guys that signed the letter to the Times last year. And what to me is so interesting is that in the conversation about 1619, but I think also in this bigger debate about the founding, you've got this strange alliance, one that people like Wilentz and Wood might be a bit embarrassed by between those white liberals and white conservatives. So effectively, you have those guys coming together to defend the idea of the kind of moral unity of American history versus this gang of like upstart, radical, again, principally black led scholars, historians, journalists who are trying to tell the story a different way. And so I think part of what's interesting about this moment is just kind of thinking about how much space there is in the culture for different stories. Like that's what surprised me most, I guess, about some of the criticism of 1619, that you almost feel as if whether you're a white liberal or whether you're uh, one of these white conservatives, there's a sort of danger almost in allowing this other narrative of the founding to kind of get out there. It's like it's the virus, right? It's like it could infect mm -hmm. everyone. So there's that sense that there's a strange alliance. Uh, I mean, you know, the 1619 gang, the, 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 during Trump's impeachment, Trump's impeachment lawyer cited McPherson and Wilentz, Jim McPherson and Sean Wilentz, 
on the floor of the Senate as evidence that the 1619 project was part of this kind of toxic culture war that Trump was defending America from. So mm-hmm. literally, you've got like Trump's defense lawyer citing white liberal historians in defense of Trump's vision of history. So I think it's if this is a culture war, it's not a bilateral kind of two-sided culture war. It's actually, right. there's a conversation going on now that has different parties in different places. And it's, it's more complicated than just a kind of left versus right thing. Indeed, indeed. And I think like you're, you're talking very much about like the nuance of the situation and how, and I said this, I remember um, I was in, uh, I was working for the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in August of 2019 when the issues came out um, in the magazine and everyone was just like scurrying to their newsstand to go get it. And I just remember, you know, doing one of my react, I did a reaction video in my car, in my, in my lavender do rag. And it was just like an amazing, <laughs> you know, moment, but also just thinking about, you know, I obviously, and, and let me just say there are, you know, valid criticisms of the project, yada, yada. So, you know, just to make sure, you know, people hear that. But I think that there is something to be said that in a world where print journalism, like the actual physical print is really nowhere, you know, it's not really cared about as yep. much in our culture anymore, that in this singular moment, uh-huh. the project did something that no other thing has done in this really generation that's make people run to the newsstand to get something in mass like this. Right. And I think that there, that is, that there is a significance to that. So Nicole Hannah Jones, Jake Silverstein, everybody at the times, yeah, I'm sure y'all hearing this right now. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Good job. Appreciate. And also, I mean, how do you feel? Yeah. Well I, well, I was going to say this before because I'm, I, I can already tell you it's going to be a great question. I think the other thing, too, is I knew I had an inkling, I had an inkling that 1619 would not just be an important like, well, 2019, really, because of when it came out. I knew that the 1619 project would have bigger legs when it came out. Because I also had an inkling that it would cause a kerfuffle, not only in the in the culture, but also in academia. And we can talk yeah. a little more about that, too. But but you, you were saying. Yeah, no, I mean, um, uh, yeah, I think I think that what to me is really interesting is just thinking about 1619 as a narrative that a lot of, should we say, kind of academic good Democrat voting historians are a little bit nervous about. I mean, again, I think it's sort of universal truth in American historiography that this idea of US history having a kind of unity, you know, in other words, you can kind of tell the story about American citizenship and belonging as a kind of single story of growth, rather than a story in which exclusion is baked in from the beginning. And there are Mm -hmm. repeated efforts to undo it. And those efforts are only partially successful. Like I think that a huge number of liberal historians who will be today wanting Biden to win more than anything else, there's a kind of nervousness among a lot of them about this uh, idea of having a different narrative out there for the founding. I mean, I'll tell you a story about Biden's support. Um, I think I've told the story before, but um, in 2015, an extremely nice, uh, extremely accomplished, excellent historian uh, uh, that I'd asked to read the manuscript got in touch with me uh, Christmas time 2015, so just before the book came out, and said, hey, listen, I don't think you can use the title you're planning on losing, uh, using. And I said, what's wrong with Biden's supply? He said, no, 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 not that part, the subtitle. So the subtitle of the book is How Enlightened Americans Invented Racial Segregation. You know, the first subtitle of the book, Adam, was How the First American Liberals Invented Racial Segregation. And Ooh. I'm not saying that this guy was wrong, but what he said was, you're going to get Dinesh D'Souza and Fox News and all of those guys kind of inviting you on. And you're going to become, well, this is an anachronism, but like the Glenn, the Glenn Greenwald of the historical profession. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. the way now, like yep. Glenn Greenwald is this guy that you can go to and get on like Tucker Carlson. And he'll talk about like Hunter Biden's laptop endlessly. And you're just watching it thinking, Indeed. no, Glenn, don't talk to Tucker Carlson. What are you doing? But that was the, yep. the advice that was given by this very senior historian. And on some level, I'm like, you can say I changed the title. On some level, I thought I was kind of caving a bit by doing it. But you also recognize that in having this debate between, say, the left and the center, or between these more radical and progressive black-led historians and journalists, and these kind of white liberals, some of them quite aging now, that actually there is a conversation there about discourse. 
and about narrative that isn't taking place on its own. The right in America is watching that conversation and is extremely keen to co-opt it. So, I mean, not wishing to kind of throw a bone to people like Will Anderson, Gordon Wood and um, uh, Jim McPherson, uh, but, you know, those guys sincerely believe, I think, that there is a level of irresponsibility in having a scholarly or a journalistic discussion about the founding that goes to the places that 1619 goes to. And I, I knew that would happen because, you know, in a much, much more modest, mostly ignored way, it happened when my book came out in 2016. I think that there is a desire not to entertain those different narratives because it's like, shh, no one's ready for that. Or shh, you know, we're going to get jumped on by the right. And I don't know what to say, Adam, because I'm like, those stories should be told and they deserve a space in the culture and in the pedagogy. And if people are triggered by them, we need to get past that. We can't keep suppressing the stories. Indeed, because I think ultimately what you're getting at is we should not be afraid of historical or historiographic conflict, because here's the thing, that's at the heart of the profession, right? So whenever someone says you're a revisionist, you know, you're writing revisionist history, I'm like, wow, thank you. Like, like, like you, 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 you see me, you see me because that is what the heck we are supposed to do, right? We're, we're supposed to revise, you know, if there's no revisionist history, then what is black reconstruction? Like the biggest and best right. example of, you know, revisionist anti-Dunning history, anti-U uh, mm -hmm. uh, Phillips history. And so um, I, I just think that, you know, you're, you're very much getting to the heart of, your book, and also, and it's an interesting way that I've been reading some of you know the your commentary in in you know the the New York uh, Review of Books and and in these various uh, spaces, and it made me also think about you know Bond is apart and your commentary about you know either whether it's, whether it's Wilentz or about the sixteen nineteen project in, in particular, it's a great parallel, right? It's a great um uh uh, uh you know connection between 1619 the the 1619 project not necessarily the date per se but the project's overall goals and our and, and your book because at the end of the day you know like king said sometimes it's it's about you know kind of like your your white friends right your white liberal friends and what they're doing as opposed mm -hmm. to these rabid you know uh you know rabid racists right that are just like really just in your face with it um, because I think that 1619 Project has really opened people's eyes. Um, you know, like my mom and I have had conversations about it. And so we probably wouldn't have had conversations about, you know, the importance of the date. And also how there are other dates, right? 1526, you know, a couple of dates in, in the 15th century. But, they're, they're, you know, 1619 is an important date. Um Yeah, but, well, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I'd also, I'd also say, Adam, that, I mean, in relation to like the the ability of the culture to sustain multiple narratives surrounding the founding of a nation. I do think the US has a particular kind of challenge or particular problem here. So, I mean, obviously, I live in Britain. Nobody gives a shit about when Britain was founded. I mean, like, who knows, right? Like, British history gets hung up on all kinds of things. And we have a particular blind spot, I think, regarding World War II and our kind of fetishization of World War II, which is just mm -hmm. like insane in the culture. And I think blinds us to all kinds of things that we probably should have adjusted to in terms of our diminished place in the world. But I think the U.S. is in a really unusual place in that I think American history, so historiography, has always somewhat been at the service of the kind of American, what should we call it, like freedom project or the kind of freedom narrative. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing, I mean, Du Bois obviously was a kind of heretic for doing this, but what you're seeing in more recent work as well is a kind of courage on the part of particularly black historians because they've been the pathfinders here, but maybe more recently too on the part of indigenous historians and others, actually to kind of look in the face of the freedom narrative and say, you do not include me. And if you don't include me, because the facts don't line up behind that. The evidence can't be you know, amassed in a way that would make you include me. I'm going to need a new narrative. And I think that's the part of the reaction to 1619 that I have found um, most kind of unsettling and most unseemly. So a kind of desire on the part of mostly white historians to say that 1619 is effectively ignoring the facts and is, you know, presenting a narrative which is unhistorical, it's all ideology or whatever else. Because what it suggests to me is that uh, at least some people in our, in our profession, more established people in the profession, again, I'm talking mostly about older white historians now, but that they see 
uh, narratives of American history is a kind of zero-sum game. Like, there's only one in town, right? So if we don't have the freedom mm -hmm. narrative, everything is going to be lost. And it's like, dude, you can have the freedom narrative. That's never going to go away. Everything in our culture constantly reinforces it. But how about we give some, some praise to and some space to, uh, you know, this disparate series of essays and artworks and reflections and, you know, creative writing, which tries to tell the story a bit differently. Like, is that what you're so afraid of? So on some level, I think when people look back on this moment in 10 or 20 or 30 years or longer, they are going to think to themselves, what was it about this challenge which so unsettled the kind of people, again, who are very happy to vote for Joe Biden? I mean, these are not Trumpistas. We're talking about people that would see themselves as being pretty liberal. So mm -hmm. why, what is it about 1619 that really you know, put the fear of God into them? And um, again, I just think it's very interesting because you can have more than one founding narrative and they mm -hmm. are legitimate contenders for public attention, legitimate kind of contenders in terms of like looking at the facts and the evidence. That's what we do as historians, right? So, so why the big kerfuffle? It's, it's to me very interesting and revealing. And, and so speaking of revealing, um, you know, one of the things that I've been fascinating with, and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, um, for, for, for those who don't know, why... What has been your major, and we're talking about um, Will Lentz here, um, what has been, I guess, your major, uh, I don't know if critique would be the best way, but effectively, what has been your major critique with, with Will Lentz in, in terms of, you know, because, I, because I've been, like I said, been reading um, some of some of your public work. And so for the audience who might not be aware of, um, you know, the, the contestation here, what, what's your major uh, quibble with, uh, or there might be multiple, but what are your quibbles with uh, Willens's, uh perspective in, in terms of 1619 and even um, his own uh, book on um, anti-slavery uh, constitutionalism? Yeah, I mean, I should say, like, I mean, so he was a professor when I was uh, in grad school at Princeton in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, I think I was only in one course he taught, although sometimes I sort of feel that he thinks we had a closer connection than we did, but it wasn't like my advisor or anything else. Um, but, you know, whatever, I've got respect for him. Uh, as a professor and particularly respect for him as a scholar. I mean, he's written some great books and some sort of garlanded books. I think that um, the sort of source of our uh, kind of current quarrel, the one that has played out in the pages of the New York Review of Books, and I guess in the pages of the New York Times now with regard to 1619, is that since the middle of this past decade, so since about 2014, 2015, he's been engaged in this effort to write a history of the constitution, which tries to argue for something called anti-slavery constitutionalism, uh, now, Adam, you're an expert on everything, so I don't have to tell you what anti-slavery constitutionalism is, but is it worth me defining it a bit for the listeners? Yeah, yeah, if you don't mind. Okay, I was going to ask you to paraphrase. So anyway, so anti-slavery <laughs> constitutionalism, this idea that in effect, there is a project of ending slavery by invoking the U.S. Constitution and possibly also the Declaration of Independence. So the Constitution is not, as William Lloyd Garrison said, the sort of pact with death or a covenant with hell stuff. You know, you burn the Constitution on the green because the Constitution is the problem. Instead, the Constitution could be part of the solution. And I mean, you'll recall in the 1850s, first Frederick Douglass and then uh, particularly Abraham Lincoln mobilized this idea of the Constitution as having anti-slavery kind of power. And then, of course, look at what happens in the 1860s, certainly when it comes to the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments. I mean, we do get an anti-slavery constitution, right? So in a literal sense, anti-slavery constitutionalism, you kind of have to admit that it, it is a real thing in American history. The big question is, when does it start? So traditionally, we have tended through the work of people like David Waldstriker in particular, to see anti-slavery constitutionalism as a kind of invention or as a, an improvisation of uh, political abolitionists in the 1840s and the 1850s. So we've tended to see it as, you know, in the same way that you would very often hear Frederick Douglass talking in glowing terms of Abraham Lincoln, when perhaps privately he might have somewhat more circumspect views on Lincoln, you'd see it as being a kind of political project which wasn't genuinely writing the history of the 1780s and saying, hey, there's all this anti-slavery potential, but rather saying, look, what can we do with the Constitution? How can we make it work for us? Well, Lentz's book, though, so this became the book No Property in Man, which came out, I think, in 2018. Uh, so that book argues that, in effect, the founders placed anti-slavery potential in the Constitution 
because the Constitution very carefully ensured, so he argues, that the principle of no property in man, quote unquote, was observed in the document. So there wasn't a blanket right to turn human beings into property in the Constitution. So despite the fact the Constitution protects slavery kind of subtly and indirectly and functionally, well, this whole book is about how actually the Constitution doesn't formally guarantee your right to enslave human beings everywhere and for all time. Now, again, I mean, my reading of this is that the functional is more important than the formal. So in other words, the fact that the founders created the Constitution, which they knew would allow slavery not just to survive, but to expand, is enough. It does not matter that not everyone was enslaved in the entire United States. You make the case that the northern and southern states would never have agreed to that anyway in the 1780s mm-hmm. because so many of the northern states were already on the pathway to abolition. But that's the big argument. So again, it's a kind of perfect exemplar of this idea of finding a kind of anti-slavery or egalitarian seed, finding racial equality or its kind of embryo in the 1770s or 1780s, and then just waiting for it to develop. So I just don't agree. I mean, we can disagree about this in a civil way and in a legitimate way. But for me, uh, it's not the case that the anti-slavery kind of constitution has any meaning functionally, whatever meaning you might want to try and read back into it if you're Frederick Douglass in the 1850s. But Willence, I think, sees this as part of a project to try to argue that in all sorts of ways, the seeds of equality are not just kind of there in the founding period, but they're basically germinating. And I mean, again, I won't rehearse all of my arguments or disputes with this, but I think that's a fair construction of what he's trying to argue. And you can see some of the reasons why my general inclination towards thinking more critically about the founding era would put me on a collision course with that thesis. So. Well done. Well done. And so um, th- th- thank you for, um, for, for, for wetting our beaks. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll make sure to put in the show notes some of the, uh, some of the actual um, uh, uh, works that we're talking about here in terms of your book, Willens' book, and also um, the stuff in the Times and the New York Review of Books. Um, and, and so in, 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 in light of time, um, one of the things I wanted to, to touch on before we head out um, you know, we've been talking a lot about history and your book and the founding just generally, but to, 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 to return to you as the scholar and you as the, the human and, and such as well, what sustain you as a, his, what, what actually sustains you as a historian, scholar, and also a human in this moment? Um, okay. Well, I'm super lucky. I have a really nice job. I have a great family. Um, I get a lot of support, I guess, institutionally and also kind of personally in terms of the love of the people that I love. So, I mean, I, I mentioned that at the start, not not glibly, but just to kind of say, again, whoever's listening to this, we all find ourselves in very different situations. And I think those of us uh, to whom a lot has been given, quite a lot should be expected. So, I, I mean, um, to the extent that this is a difficult moment for any of us to be living and working, some of us have it so much easier. So I would say that um, I think that those things really help a lot. I think that... Um, the community of scholars is such a funny thing. I mean, I know it sounds uh, totally shallow and vapid, but uh, so many people in the US that I feel able to kind of keep up with on social media, on Twitter, and also so many people I learn so much from. Uh, I mean, you know, Adam, you and your guests, uh, you know, people that I perhaps 20 or 30 years ago would never have had the chance to encounter, but now you can feel this kind of closeness to. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, I feel that uh, there is such a kind of tightly knit, and kind of well-informed and, you know, just a real kind of scholarly community. And, you know, we debate and we may disagree on some stuff, but I, I feel like that's one of the wonderful things about this moment, despite all the terrible stuff going on, that we have these kind of mechanisms to preserve community. Um, I should just say one more thing, though, which is that, you know, I'm like a middle-aged white guy. And I think one thing for middle-aged white guys to reflect on when they work on race in any way is, and again, not wishing to sound pious, like there's a way in which you can kind of check in in the morning and check out, right? So mm-hmm. in other words, like as a white man living in Britain, like I can do this work on, um, you know, the African-American freedom struggle or on colonization or, you know, on ideas of citizenship in the US. But, you know, I can go and like take the weekend off. And I mean, I think that we do still live in a society where although everything is racial, 
if you have a certain kind of racial privilege or identity, you can take the weekend off of race, right? I mean, maybe you go on Twitter and you like tweet about something or see something. But mm -hmm. to me, again, that just seems like it's an incredible privilege and it's one that we should be working collectively to dismantle. But to the extent that like you have that going on in your life as well, um, I mean, kind of checking in to work on this stuff and not having to deal with the levels of exhaustion and the levels of kind of frustration and despair, which many of my black and brown colleagues face institutionally and in their research, right? Because if you're a black or brown historian working here in Britain, the amount of like race work, as you might call it, that they get called mm -hmm. on to do in terms of being on diversity committees or targeted hiring committees or whatever, or now investigations into slavery. So this right. is the irony of our time, right? So we finally hire some black people. And the very first thing we do is we just tie them up in a million and one investigations into slavery. So like, again, I think that, that those levels of exhaustion and of being put upon Middle-aged white guy, you get to pick and choose. So, I mean, maybe that's a cynical way of approaching it, but I do think that for folks like me to kind of complain about being overburdened or whatever else would be a really bad look. So I have it very easy, and um, I'm very lucky to have my job, and um, just really grateful every day to get to do it. And, and thank you for for your candor there, because you know I'm you know first of all thank you for for the compliment too. I'm you know I, I love. I love doing new books in FM. You're, I think, number when this gets published, I think you'll be number seventy-five. Um, in, in wow! The, in congratulations. The, thank you, thank you. It, it's been an honor you're and a get, pleasure. You're getting up there. Yeah, yeah. It's been three years. It's been three years that I've been that I've been interviewing wow. folks, and um, it, it's it's a pleasure to do it because. Um, you know, technology and and such is is such where we can have these conversations uh, between us that get recorded and that get put out in this thing called a podcast, which I would not have known what the heck that was fifteen years ago. And so mm -hmm. it's um it's a it's a beauty um it's a beautiful honor to get to as a grad student, right? You know, we talked about this offline. I'm a grad student, and the fact that I get to talk yeah, to folks yeah. for like an hour and and some change just to like you know, talk about history and, and, and culture. Um, and so I really appreciate you. And, um, and this would be the uh, two, two, two last questions um, for you too. And you yeah. had actually alluded to this, but I want to hear uh, a little more meat on it. What does it mean for you to write about the early United States and also the travails faced by black and native people dur during this particular period of American history? I mean, that's a tough question to answer. Um, I mean, I think about it a lot. I mean, I think that your racial identity and your racial privilege uh, matters, and it's something that you need to think through, and you need to, and, and that's not like an event, right? It's like a process that is ongoing and continuing. I'd say a lot of what I've done so far is to think about, principally about how white people think about black and indigenous uh, and other people of color. So a lot of my focus in my work has had kind of white people, particularly quote unquote liberal whites, in the foreground. But yeah, I mean, the new book I'm working on has got a sort of significant and important set of black characters. So, I mean, um, yeah, it's, uh, one has to think about authorship. One has to think about kind of who gets to tell these stories. And one thinks a lot about uh, the people that you're reading. So, you know, I mean, if you are attempting to try and write well about the experience of black and indigenous people, well, you know, who are the historians out there, particularly black and indigenous historians who can kind of help you along the way. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 my next project originally was not going to be something in kind of black history, but it's ended up being that way. Um, but I do think a lot about that kind of question of what it means, particularly as a white person, you know, who's trying to listen and be attentive, who works on subjects that touch on black and indigenous history. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I'm still working that out, Adam. Hey, it's all good. We're all works in progress here. And so this would be a launching pad for the next time you get asked that question, maybe. <laughs> uh, but you're not far off your comps exam hey man hey. Look, you know it's funny you mentioned that i'm actually um my next exam is actually in february on early america and so i'm, I'm sure you know i'll be uh i'll be returning back to this interview um and reading your book again to uh for, for the second time to be able to to, to uh, answer these amazing questions about early American history broadly conceived, or in the in the words of uh, of the executive director of the Omaha Hunter Institute, Karen Wolf, vast hashtag vast early America. So it's a great I, I love great it. I love it. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's great. And so, um, 
you know, you, you mentioned this would be the last question. You mentioned this before, uh, just then about your next project. C- can you tell us about this next project? Yeah, okay. I'm doing three things. I'm going to tell you very quickly. Okay. So the first one is I'm editing uh, a new Oxford history of the United States. And I'm really excited about it because it's 15 historians uh, that we've brought together to try and write the different chapters. And we have some awesome people. So we have Tavolia Glimp, we've got Anna Sachs. We have uh, Sherry Randolph, we've got Joyce Chaplin, we have Nathan Connolly, we have uh, Melinda Maynard-Lowry, Chad Williams. And we just have this, this awesome, awesome team. There's people I've left out now that are going to be really annoyed if they listen to this, but we just have a great team. And I think it's majority female. Um, I think it's majority people of color, I think, anyway. I can't remember. Uh, but, but like that aspect of it, that we finally have like what I would consider a representative team to write this kind of big history of the United States for the general public. I'm just so lucky to have been asked to edit it and I couldn't be happy with the team. And we're all going to get together for the first time on Zoom, obviously, next week. And we're hoping we're going to have a conference probably on Zoom next summer. And with any luck, that book will be out next year or the year after. So that's one thing I'm doing. Uh, I'm also writing a book about Jefferson and slavery with my buddy, Krista Dieksider at the University of Virginia. And Adam, again, this will be down your street. We're Mm going to try and write the first book about Jefferson and slavery that tries to investigate all of Jefferson's suggested solutions to the problem of slavery. The first book on this for about 40 years. So obviously deeply wow. influenced by folks who've worked more recently, people like Annette Gordon-Reed, uh, who's a wonderful person, and yeah, pal of mine, someone I'm very proud to call a friend. Um, yeah, so she, her work is obviously a huge influence. But yeah, we're just going to try and lay down all of these different ways in which Jefferson thought slavery might be ended, including colonization. And I think that exclusion is going to be at the heart of that. So that book is going to get us into a bit of trouble, too, because we will be taking exclusion back into the spanning space. But the mm. thing I've just finished, the final project, um, is a book about uh, Dartmoor Prison. Do you, do you know anything about Dartmoor Prison and the War of 1812, Adam? You heard yeah, about the story. you, you want to know why? Because I watched your lecture on yeah, YouTube. I actually watched your uh, <laughs> lecture on YouTube um, because I actually um, I found uh, through uh, W.W. Free Bolster uh, in the William & Mary Quarterly, yeah. I think in 2007, um, in the notes and documents page, he actually published... Um, a set of uh, semen protection um, um, uh, certificates. Yeah, certificates. I, I actually, I don't think there was. They were actually letters. Actually, there were letters written um, by African American sailors yep. from I think the the seven around seventeen in the late seventeen nineties all the way up until the late eighteen yep. teens. And um, because you know during the obviously during the War of eighteen twelve, a number of of black sailors were um were impressed and actually um uh, sent to i believe a dartmoor prison if i got that correct that's right which is in southwest england so there are six and a half thousand americans again prison there during the war of 1812 but what drew me to the story is that a thousand of those black and when i say they're black i'm using black with kind of quotation marks around it so i think most of them are from the african diaspora but they're also like a bunch of people from latin america from what's now colombia some of whom may have been black, some of whom may not have been, they may have been indigenous. They're also like people from South Asia, people from China. The reason that they got called black is because the prison ended up being segregated. So once the Americans got there, six and a half thousand of them, a bunch of the Americans who were white decided that they wanted the black prisoners to be in a separate space. So uh, the book I'm writing is a history of, I think, the first racially segregated prison in American history, which happened to be in the southwest of England. And crucially, about how black people in the prison felt about the fact that they had their own prison block. So effectively, they had this space that was completely self-governing in which they were in charge. And there's been a lot written about that prison kind of in passing in American history. But this Mm -hmm. is the first time anyone's ever written a book about it. And I just think it's fascinating, particularly since these guys are sailors. Most of them are kind of commercial sailors. They're not in the U.S. Navy. They're from like regular merchant ships. And they wind up in this prison. And it's like, well, what matters more, race or nationality? And it's like, well, okay, are they American? Do they identify as American? Do they identify as being part of the Black Atlantic? What's Mm -hmm. going on with these guys? So it's a story about what happens to them. And to the extent that the U.S. is really bad at helping any of the sailors. So the sailors just stuck there for years and years. It's a story about what you do when you're in a really tough situation and it doesn't look like your government is going to help you, which is why it was funny to be writing this during the pandemic. My goodness. My goodness. Well, Nick, it has been a pleasure and an honor to finally get this uh, interview on wax. We are we we've we've done it. Oh, my gosh. It's been a long time coming. Hooray! 
hooray um and uh it's you know it's it's phenomenal um and uh I'm, i'm really excited that you know we got this going and actually hold on isn't there hold on if let me let me make sure I got this right. Just before we leave, bonus apart, isn't that a? Uh, didn't you connect that to Nina Simone um, in your in your book too? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's from a, a Nina Simone uh, performance um, uh, in Montreux in Switzerland. Uh, so she was uh, there in Montreux at the jazz festival. I think it's in the seventies. So it's after she spent some time in Liberia, mm-hmm. yeah, nineteen seventy six. So she's singing. Um, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. And she accidentally mangles the words. So uh, so she should have sung, remove all the bars that keep us apart. But she's saying, break all the things that bind us apart. And this idea of bind us apart, I don't know, it just seems so kind of poetic to me with this idea that Native Americans and African Americans are somehow going to become more like white Americans by going somewhere else. So it just seemed to me like a very, particularly since she'd been in Liberia, just an incredibly... I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, serendipitous phrase that I thought would be perfect for the book. And hey, that's a great way for us to leave here. And so, y'all, we've had the amazing opportunity to talk to my friend, Dr. Nicholas Guyette, and he's the author of the amazing book published in 2016, Bind Us Apart, How Enlightened Americans Invented Racial Segregation. And as you heard in the interview, there's another interesting title that he originally, a subtitle that he originally went with. And so uh, we'll return back to that to get to get the uh, to get the director's cut. And so, y'all, um, please, if you've enjoyed this conversation, rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And so, y'all, I am your host of New Books in African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Until next time, y'all, over and out.